0: I've had a long line of podcasts now. My podcasts are like uh, divorces or something. I uh, started out with Chris Martin, and I named it Not That Chris Martin. And right. then uh, I uh, did something with Mikey. Uh, uh, Fya, fuck your agenda.
1: <laughs> you know, <And laughs> that then, sounds like something Mikey would be involved in.
0: And I'm, you know, God. Lucky enough to guest on a couple of other ones. I got to go guest with Woods. I was super fun. Yeah, I love know, that guy. And uh, but um, so now um, this is sort of like the the no man's land version. We don't even have a name. You know, I got to I got to figure the whole thing out. But I've you just, should. I did one with Ben Johnson, right? Um, and uh,
1: talking about fanboy, which one I guess you, I guess you're in that movie. Uh, yeah, I'm in it, and I have music in it too. Right, which is I'm on the soundtrack, which I was especially excited about uh, because he's putting the soundtrack out as a Movie soundtrack on vinyl, and I think that's the coolest thing ever. Under what moniker, Miniaturized? Uh, yeah, min- that's, it's actually a, it's going to come out for my records ever released or the singles ever released, so it's kind of like a sneak preview of it. But and th- this is the record that was produced by Greg Calbee. Uh That Greg Calby is mastering it. Uh, Mitch, mastering. Mitch Easter. Oh my goodness, Mitch what?
0: Easter produced it.
1: Jesus, you, you know who pulled- Mitch Easter is?
0: <laughs> you have pulled more names out of a hat. In your musical career, than anyone in San Diego. <laughs> I don't most know about of, that. Like most of the Casbah guys, they've you got the same four big fish, yeah. sort of guys that have done all their stuff. Mark Trombino and all that. Like sure.
1: apparently, did everybody's record,
0: right? Of course, yeah. But you, on the other hand, it is
1: like a renaissance with each project name. Well, I think that uh, um, I'm always looking to kind of open new avenues, and uh, it seems to me that. That I've always written songs. I write them all the time. They just kind of come out of me. And after a while, they're built up as kind of a collection. I look at it and I say, you know, I really got to do this. But this whole thing started a different way for me. The, the From the get-go, the idea of it was different. It uh, came to me when Tim Mays and I kind of got together and talked about doing a, a tribute to Tom Petty. It was right, the, right after he died. And uh, it ended up being for the Grammy Association's uh, charity Music Cares. So we were going to donate all the money uh, to Music Cares to help out musicians who you know were struggling. And this is before the pandemic hit. right? And so uh, I started thinking, I'm like, who would want to play with me? And I started calling guys I knew who liked Petty or just guys I thought were cool, Mario Rubicalba and Andrew McKeague and all these cats. And I was like, hey, I'm going to do this Petty tribute. You guys want to do it? And they all just jumped on board.
0: I mean, how many names do you have in your phone? A lot. Like 2,612? I don't know. I never counted. But they,
1: I, I mean, like, I think... I,
0: but, like, it, it, other people, they, they have, you know, 1,200 girls and 700 guys. You've got 800 guitar players. I've deleted more girls. You've got than 312 it. bass players.
1: Yeah. You've got
0: seven B3 players.
1: It's not so much the players. It's friends and people who I have, you know, association with and people who I... I I meld with like Freddie sitting in the other room. Like we go way back. To, you know, we used to work together in a nightclub. I met him in a nightclub downtown. It was called Aubergine, and yeah. I, I was bartending there in between tours. And uh, you know, Freddie Fresh and uh, DJ Scooter and uh, Mikey Beats and all these people all either DJed there or worked there. And there was this incredible community of people. And it was weird because we were all in this. You know, like cocaine-fueled nightlife, like, you know, 40 bucks at the door kind of place. I don't belong in places like that. I mean, furthest thing from anything I ever wanted to be at. But all these amazing, creative, exciting people worked there. And we all became friends. And over the years, and we were together a long time, we would talk about music and, you know, progression and all these ideas. And I think when you bond with somebody over that uh, like like minds kind of grow together you know what I mean and so that's why Freddie Fresh and I are still friends that's why it's like it's good to see him and hear what he's doing he's got all this cool music going on and he's still working on it and Mikey's still working on it and we've all stayed in contact over the years and is you know I do that with everybody I think that when you meet somebody who's a fellow creative or who's interested in things there's really great ways to bond over it and like I'd rather have more friends than enemies you know what I mean yeah, no doubt, no doubt. I used to get super inspired. I wound up, you know, when I went
0: to House of Blues, I wound up uh, stepping in for uh, Paul McGuigan. And um, Paul McGuigan's, you know, like everyone else on the planet younger than me, but probably 10 years, but still, he'd already been running House of Blues Sunset for pretty much a decade mm-hmm. and had done every Little Wayne show, just like ridiculous stuff like that. But the coolest thing about that guy, when um, we were all talking about like me going in there and everything, was that all the times that that guy would show up at the room I had before Viper room, and he would show up, and he'd only want to talk about gear. So yeah. he'd come back and he'd get Frankie Fingers and, and Pete Stahl and all those guys yeah. and he'd go right back to the amps rack and right back to the effects rack and like, hey, what do you guys got new? What do you guys got analog? What, you know? And in, between that and his you know multifaceted careers is whether it was dubstep or whatever genre, uh, subgenre that no one else is listening to except for him and 500 Friends, you know he was always super deep into that stuff. And that you're you're right. That the point of connectivity is where the really good relationship building and networking comes from. There's no it's, doubt about it's it. It's like
1: you and I, Joe. I mean, like we've known each other a long time. We worked on shows together. I, I mean, you booked me at clubs you worked in L.A. You clubs you worked here in San Diego, and like you have an incredible reputation as a like an even-handed, fair, and you know, uh, kind of like a stalwart in the music business. Like people are like, oh, hey man, Joe's a good guy. Everybody likes you, you know. And I think that you have that same a uh, characteristic where you attach yourself to people, uh, relationship wise. And I think it's always better to do business and, you know, uh Begin ventures with people who you trust and know, and you like you know their personality and you know what their inclinations are yeah i 'm not that fast i
0: can 't run very fast at all, <laughs> so if I was to make some sort of a critical honor mistake in one of my deals i 'd have nowhere to hide, nowhere to run so and you know the whole thing is so incestuous, so circular you like, 're going to run into the same whatever like, here we are like twenty years later, yeah right oh. uh, you know and it states all the way back to um, Lou Niles. Uh, when Lou and I both moved to LA at the same time, and I got hooked up with you and your crew during Buckfast Super B. And yep. He was super involved in it. But this is when uh, we were doing Ultimatum in yep. Los Angeles, and that's a big part of where we um, started doing stuff. And then as soon as I had you know dates to fill and things to go, like that was obviously like more people I wanted to work with. I remember them. That would be great. And I, you have no hesitancy whatsoever, making outgoing calls. No. Like you, you know, been a fleck in boiler room. Like you could have co-written that movie, <laughs> right? And there's a in the boiler room. There's four hundred people in TJ's boiler room. There's just the one guy.
1: Well, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I, how else do you get things done if you don't do them yourself? I mean, I, like, I, I believe me. I've been a band leader since I was eleven. Like. You can delegate things, but usually when you do, if people don't have the same interest or or they're not as vested in the project as you are, it never gets done the right way. I I own a I own a recording studio I have for almost eighteen years, and I clean the bathroom. You know, like I'm in there every day scraping shit off the inside of the toilet, spackled shit that's just like blown out. Like you know, believe me, Mikey Beats has been to my studio. I could clean up after him. It was gross. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? And like, I don't mind it. Like to me, because if I (laughs) (laughs) hired somebody to do it, one, you know, like it's not a necessary expense because I like doing it because I do it my way and it stays the way it does (laughs) because I'm there every day and I take care of it. So I think that, that's the type of personality I am. I'm not controlling. I'm always willing to work with other people, but I want to see it all the way through and make sure that it's done 100%. There, there is no greater definition for the king of DIY
0: than that whole description of things. There is no other way. I, I've definitely been there. And to be honest with you, that is my philosophy as to how I start really large organizations. I, I've This is like the third or fourth time where you know in this business and in other businesses quite frankly um uh, it started with two or three people and blossomed to 250 You know, like 250 people work at Music Box, right? Where'd that all come from? And I got a lot of help. You know, there's 15 departments, but there really was employee number one. (laughs) And it all had to come from somewhere. And somebody, like you're saying, had to go clean the bathrooms for the first three months because there was no one else there. And thank goodness I had some of that experience when we got to the pandemic, because there we went right back down. We wound up all the way down to two employees. Oh, man. I'm sorry to hear that. You know, and it is... I... I would have been sorry to hear that if this had been 2009 where there wasn't really recourse for a bunch of people, but we were kind of the quickest to tell our staff, hey, look, we're going to go to furloughs, but don't be afraid. It seems to me like there is some real thought going into how to carry this thing through. And of course, when we're saying carry this through, carry this through 90 days, not uh, 15 months. But uh, with some bumps in the road, now it's kind of hard to get some people to come back to work because that safety net with those bumps has been relatively intact for people. And so I, I'd stay in super close touch with 30 or 40 people that I know I desperately need to rely on on day one. And just you know, and they all have communicated back to me, not like I'm near homelessness or that kind of thing. They're like, no, I think i got this figured out. And it's like, with a great sense of relief.
1: Well, I mean, like, you know, I think that uh, it it was definitely scary for anybody in the music business. I can't imagine owning a venue. I own a recording studio and rehearsal studio where bands pay monthly to rent out a room, and then, you know, bands come in to pay for recording time and use my equipment, and, you know, I produce records too. And uh, when it first happened, I was like, okay, I I don't really understand how this is going to affect everything. Everything shut down. And then within the first three months – all of a sudden, I, had, I started getting calls like, hey, we can't afford the room anymore. Like, I work at a restaurant. My restaurant's shut. I have to worry about my rent at my apartment, and I, we can't have the room. So I all of a sudden started to think, oh, all my rooms are going to – because I'm always full. All my rooms are going to start leaving, and I don't know how I'm going to fill them with nobody. But actually, it really wasn't – that big of a deal. Like as soon as a band left, there was one waiting to come in who jobs weren't affected by the pandemic. And it was, I was surprised. All I had to do was just make a couple of phone calls and there were people waiting to come in. So I was able to sustain the recording activity definitely dropped because people didn't have spare income, weren't sure what was going to happen. And because nobody could be in the same room together, I did a lot of remote stuff and that, that part of my business definitely uh, stalled for the better part of last year. So I like, I, I, am glad I'm here with you because I wanted to ask, like, what do you think about the, the progression of, of live shows? How do you think it's going to happen? Like I, I talked to a lot of people, Tim Mays and I have been on the phone, you know, a, a lot. Over this, this shutdown. And I always like, what do you think? You know, when do you think live shows are going to come back? And he's skeptical. He goes, I don't think it's going to be any sense. There's going to be any sense of normalcy until 22 is what his prediction to me was. How do you feel about it? There's like
0: 3,000 layers to answer that question, as there should be. It's not a surprise. you know. It's not like that sort of pass off of, oh, it's complicated. Of course it's complicated, but there's answers to all of it. Uh, first and foremost, um, I have no credibility. Um, I have been wrong on how this was going to transpire at least six times in 15 months. Nobody knows. I, and I, I definitely came out the gate... We actually made calls. I talked to Tim Piles and I said, Hey, I got an idea, something I want to do in June of last year. And it wasn't like regular. It wasn't sweaty mosh pit. It wasn't reckless. It wasn't let's get some people sick. I'm like, I think they're going to let us use the venue. We may not be able to do bands, but let's do this video concept, that kind of thing. And so I was trying to do stuff back then. That thing lasted about 10 minutes. Tim, to his credit, is like, hey, You know, I talked to my wife. We're not too, and, you know, and then like in July, the whole thing was locked down again. Everything was closed again. So yeah. like, that was I, my first fall start happened then, and then I had another one in September. Then I had another one in November, and all the while I also did a bunch of drive-ins out in uh, Riverside, and I did a full season of the driver in the fall. Uh, you know, did like Sublime and you know the band you would expect me to do sure. out there, and uh, we actually did Major Laser with Diplo and all kinds of cool. No, that's stuff, cool, you know, and. Ran some some business out there, and even that, um, it was time to keep going with that, getting towards Christmas. And I'm like, I got to get out of this thing too. This is I don't want to be doing anything that it might make people sick as we're coming into this last uh, LA mega upswing, right? So we like canceled our last show uh, and uh, Boombox Cartel, big uh, dance thing, and uh, it was super unfortunate, but it just. Every time I've tried to get a bearing as to how this thing was going to work, it went pretty much the other way. We got a fourth surge and just, you know, okay, so now now where's it going to end? So then um, we had a feeling that we were going to get somewhere when this thing subsided. uh, We thought it was going to be March, and then we thought it was going to be this this month, May. And now we're wondering if we're going to get half capacity in June. Um, I I think we will, uh,
1: but... What's that going to look like, though? Does people have to present their vaccination card? Does everybody wear masks at shows? We have to, There's their social distancing in the venue while the band is playing. Like, like, there, there's so many unknowns. There are so many variables. I mean, I'm not
0: shy. Uh, I, you know, I know how I feel, and you know, I am super vested in the brands I'm partners in. If you're not vaccinated. I don't want you walking in the door. I feel the same. I don't. I, don't. I mean, there's and no that, reason not to be vaccinated now. This is the, uh, you know, it's just like you got to be 21 to drink at some level. You've yeah. got to had some level of precaution in your game in order to go into some riskier activities. And it's not just this. I, I think you should, I think there should be some vaccination stipulations for flying on airplanes. Agreed. Uh, for using, uh, some level of mass transit, like trains, like Amtrak and that kind of thing. I think it starts there. Um, I really want all of my employees to um, be vaccinated when they come to work, understanding that they're going to be established in a risky environment. I don't feel comfortable mandating it, but I also want to know you know, up front, are you or are you not? And I'll probably you know, have to determine my level of guilt uh, risk and whether I put them on the schedule or not. You know, because I, I just I gotta.
1: Not, I think I, you're within your rights, and honestly, I know there's going to be discrimination cases filed against it. But what what are the complainers? What are the anti-vaxxers' excuse? Like they they think they're being microchipped. I mean, like you're walking around with a microchip in your pocket that you have in your hand all day long. They know where you are. They know everything you I, want. I don't. I don't actually. I don't understand the I don't, philosophy behind. I don't,
0: it. I don't. I don't attempt to understand. I just know what I want.
1: Right. And I, I I think, have, I think I, that I, makes sense.
0: I, I know specifically. I have a task, and my task is to manage risk in the 12,000 square feet that, that makes Music Box. And so, in order for me to um, manage that risk, uh, that is the way I would prefer to manage that risk that 100% of both employees and uh, participants uh, went through a vaccination process, because uh, I'm convinced that that is the solution. And um, if you don't, I don't want to take you to task for it. I just don't want your customership uh, until it's been proven by science somehow elsewhere that you aren't going to create risk for everyone else around you. I think that's I think that's a
1: perfectly legitimate and logical stance. I, I know
0: I know a significant number of people in this country don't agree with that, but that's the nature of private business. Uh, normally, I would want to have a private business. I absolutely love all genres of music, especially genres of music that bring people that would normally not. Uh, I would normally see. I, I love going to the Temecula Stampede. I love going to all kinds of places. Normally, it's a great. Um, Combinative effect to have music, you know. When I run, you know, truck stop troubadours and, and, you know, big country shows where dually show up, I I love those crowds. I, you know, I I love big hip hop crowds. I love big Spanish language crowds. I I think it's absolutely great to have all kinds of walks of life, uh, their tribe, uh, like minded people within their tribe all come and enjoy the venue. Uh, And so it's, there is no, Ideology. It is literally just science. It's not like I don't care what basis you have for not wanting to participate. It's just I'm going to need that participation at least until science tells me. And how can any
1: reasonable individual argue with that stance at all? I mean, I think that's fine. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Well, we'll see. I support. I support that attitude. I. I, We'll see. I mean,
0: I don't want to get sued. I. 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 And there's going to be people. That's and
1: wait. That's another question I have, Joe. Like what you just said. So. That goes into the insurance for shows, right? Like these big venues, these these like the the Coachellas and and, and the Kaboo festivals, um, and the
0: and the all the UK stuff. The UK stuff is where. Like this how be How are determined the insurance right
1: companies going to like pay bond for that stuff? Like, wh- how is that going to happen? Like, there's a, a what insurance company is going to take that risk if there's a mass outbreak and like people die from it and they trace it back to the event that they let happen? I mean, I mean, is that, that's, that's another I, 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 factor. I've said this a couple million times. Um, is, is those seem
0: to you to be like giant examples that don't have peer anywhere in the U.S. And I'm telling you, you're not on an island. Yeah. That the same number of people that go through, the same 90,000 people that go through Coachella, or I guess it's 180,000 over two weeks, um, go through LAX in a day. And they do the same exact milling about at LAX that they do. So you, you're, you're not on an island. You've got a, a bazillion airports, a bazillion shopping malls, a bazillion giant employers all doing the exact same math. And, you know, they're not making the, – Coachella is not making science decisions. Science is determining how all congregations should affect one another.
1: Agreed. There's, there's just no doubt about it. Yeah, I'm just saying from, from an event standpoint, like the airport's not an event – like that's something that's that's considered essential.
0: They need it. I mean, that's, yeah. they're they are the same. Airports need insurance. Airports have got Shh. airports got to carry liability insurance. Yeah, I'm they, sure,
1: I'm sure. But isn't it like a what what the insurance that festivals get is temporary? It's they have to get approved for it. That's what I'm saying. Is the insurance company willing to take that risk for that whatever two weekends of a, of hundred thousand, hundred eighty thousand people? Are they I mean, willing to 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 you, cover it?
0: You bring up a really good point. In my opinion. Um, the economics of insurance is liquid. It, does, it should not matter to the insurer. It's the number of people, the amount of risk in a in a tangible algorithm, and you come. I don't up know with about that.
1: I don't trust insurance companies, man. I, like, I, mean,
0: I they 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 they're subject to audit. But my point is, it's just like any other commodity. It's a financial transaction, and there is an answer. And to And they're it. also greedy However, bastards. however, though they do have a political element to them, and they will cherry-pick stuff that sometimes seems politically inopportune for them, and they'll single it out, like trying to make the case, oh, look, we're being extra careful. We're not letting those guys do the same thing that that airport just did. Right, right. And I, I mean, I, I don't think it's correct. I think that those are things where uh, governments have to sort of uh, toe the line a little bit. Where, Like I said, this is getting all meted out in... Um, in the UK right now because they lost like 25% of their initial rebookings on reopening in the live music world um, because those things couldn't get insurance and they're actually going back to the government and saying you got to rectify this market because we're we're getting treated differently than all these other facets of the economy and it, it has to get equalized and the government's going to do it. They're going to make it so that you can't just cherry pick, well this economy can live and that economy can die. And That was the biggest complaint going in to the lockdown in the first place—that they were just—they were in a panic, understandably, because they had to go fast. They were cherry-picking what they had to shut down and what they kept going. They well, kept all the
1: airlines going I mean, in a weird way. That's because they were woefully unprepared for what was taking place, pretty much everywhere, especially United States. Well, who would be prepared? No, I, nobody. I, I, and no, and I—and I didn't get mad so much that they weren't prepared. It was—it was how they handled the response. Back back when it first started happening, that I was a little upset. It was like, wow, man, really? Like, this is how it is. Like, that's not okay, you know. But that's that's gone and it's history now. And it is what it is. And now, at least, it seems to me there's like a, a a the the at least the vaccination effort has been much more organized and fast. But there's all this other stuff like how restaurants are just now being able to open, and you know, a lot of my friends lost their businesses, they lost their jobs people i know i've known for a long time struggled really badly through this thing yeah
0: it, it, it was it was an ugly it was an ugly thing for sure i am not going to single out restaurants i am going to single out uh music box for a second i'm going to tell you right now uh, music box n- needed to close it needed to close first um i the last things i did before we closed was run two crossed festival after parties And if you know anything about them, they're indoors. I got 12 air conditioning compressors, 12 of them, right? I have no chance of circulating the air in that place with 800 people in it. Uh, And if you know anything about the science that's been learned, we did not know it in March of last year, but we certainly knew it by March of this year, Uh, you know... Everything that could have gone cataclysmically wrong was there as an element, and somehow or another, that didn't occur, because we were just in a low-prevalence area at that time. There was a um, festival in Miami on the exact same weekend, a uh, big sort of gay pride festival thing, uh, and those, it, it was a parade and then it uh, sort of transited into a whole bunch of club events. It was a major super-spreader event. Uh, so I never take lightly the fact we closed just in time and others closed at the same time and weren't nearly as fortunate. Mm-hmm. But when you talk about restaurants, I can only talk about myself. I had to close. Uh, hardship or not, it would have been worse. You know, I think people would
1: say it's been very hard on me. But I know I didn't kill somebody. Well, yeah, it's also a very big venue, you know, a with a lot of people. And it's just like the, the more people you can fit in there, the more risk you have. That's just how it is. It's the numbers thing. So I think you did the right thing. And I'm glad you did. And I'm glad to see that, like, you know, you got plans to, to start it back up and everything's going to be going again, you know. I think that all the choices you're making are great. Like, you're a prudent, intelligent human being. I mean, I'm not... I'm definitely not in the same sort of line of
0: thought as Tim. I definitely don't I, I, it might be even be personal greed at some level. I don't want to wait till 2022 to try well, to do this Well, I mean I, that going. was
1: that was just prediction. I mean if you know the Casbah is like having people. I'm going there this weekend. They have like DJs playing and they have a taco cart and you can go in, you got to spread and you have to wear a mask, but you can go there and have a drink and hang out, and it's a hangout. I mean, I haven't been yet. I've talked to a couple who went, and said, "Yeah, we had fun. We just, I saw some people, said hi, sat, had some drinks, and left." It was just like a, just being able to go to the Casbah was cool, you know.
0: I just I, my vision is uh, half capacity, three hundred people in the room on a Friday, able to create. Uh, Some people will be vaccinated and at some level, like not reckless, but just like not having the same level of concern and care. And they'll be in the front in a normal sort of setting. Some people will um, be thinking about it from a risk averse standpoint and will be spread out and probably moving themselves to the back or using the balconies or doing whatever. Instead of it being normally at a half capacity, I just run at the lower level. Uh, We're going to open the entire thing up and
1: that way people can spread out. Now, here's the flip side of that half capacity. I know artists are dying to play, but who wants to play for a half full room every time they play like you you, like, oh, it's sold out because it's half capacity. And so you don't have a a throng of people in front. You don't have a whole crowd to look at, like sticking their fist in the air because they're all kind of spread out. Everybody's like touchy about getting next to somebody else. They don't know. You know, it's uh, there's all this uncertainty.
0: It's not what's happening at all. I mean, you're right about the half capacity thing at some level, but it's also versus zero. So you either want to wait till September of 2022 where you can have 700 in mosh pits or you want to – to me, I actually do need to ramp up. I'm going to have to bring in at least half new staff. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to have to re-recruit, do all kinds of, uh, especially in, uh, like you're saying, and on the service side and on the security side. And I, it, there's going to be a lot of new faces. It's going to yeah. be like some retraining. I, I want to get those guys uh, in at a... At a Teachable level, not like overnight start running, you know, uh, uh, the game show <laughs> right. for 705 people and having, you know, a police presence. And I, I would rather wait for a minute for that to occur. I think that's so, a good choice, too. Uh, you know, and so that kind of ramp up is, is going to extend into what the singer sees when he steps up to the microphone when it's his set time. Like, for sure. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's absolutely- I mean, listen,
1: man, I haven't played a show in a year. I did one streaming show, which I was goaded into doing for the. the- the Christmas Eve thing, which I do every year, but it was, you know, on a stage in front of nobody except for cameras. And it was really, I had to wear a mask when I was up there not singing. And then I took it off when I sang and it was a really strange experience. And I watched a few of those streaming shows over the pandemic and i I mean, to me, for somebody who's lived and breathed music his whole life, I just I couldn't get into it. And I think a lot of people are kind of at the point where I'm where they don't want to look at their screens anymore. And they're like itching to get out and stand, you know, in a crowd and watch a show. I want to do it. I really do. Will it be the same if it's a half capacity venue and you can walk around? I mean, sometimes that's nice. Depending on what you're going to see, you know, it just depends. There's so, like I said, there's so many variables, into it's such a weird, unprecedented time that all of us are living through that it's impossible to make any predictions that seem logical. You know, it's like, well, this could happen, but this could happen. Yeah, I am. I, um... I had a fairly limited
0: uh, appetite for doing the, the streaming stuff. I did I did the L-1011 one. I'm super proud of that one. That came out Christian, so I, I, well. I know
1: Christian really well. I love and, that guy. And, uh, that know, band rules.
0: And it, and it was good for them. It was a national, basically a global show for them. Yeah. Uh, you know, And then I did one for- They're a popular uh, band. The the guy from Stick Figure uh, K Bong, same thing. He had a a fan base. His name is K Bong. K Bong, that's true. (laughs) He's awesome, right? B O N G K Bong. Yeah, yeah, spells it right. (laughs) Damn. (laughs) So yeah, his was absolutely stunning too, and had a a very strong uh, U.S. and also Pacific Islander sort of following globally. You know, it's great stuff, but. I also started out doing the Band Together stuff, and I don't want to say doing. I, I was not hands-on on the project. I sort of executive produced it and helped them and did a lot of, like, the early Twitch mechanics and a lot of that stuff, but, um, you know, that was the same, same, but different guys, and Jesse Orlando and Graj Mahal uh, doing a lot of the, um, the production on that. But so I had some level of credit for probably 20 of them but that's not a lot and at the end it was near zero I'm just I I can I can just wait to see. there was
1: so many like people who put a lot of effort into making cool shows like I saw the one that Earthless did and I thought it was really awesome Uh, but it was still like watching it on my Laptop, just, It just doesn't translate to me. And I think a lot of people kind of feel similarly. Like, oh, it's nice to see guys play, and it's nice to hear music. But I have an incredible record collection I'd rather spend time with <laughs> than, like, watch, you know, a live mic show through my computer. I, like, I'm a guy who went to, you know, four or five shows a week when things were happening, you know, a lot. So to me, it was a definite uh, – uh, it was painful to have so to – So have you been to all three SOMAs? Uh, I didn't go to the first one, the Metro one.
0: You went to the one uh, in uh, Bay Park, yes. And then
1: it, just once, though, just yeah. once. I was like, real, I was young, you know. I was like, I couldn't get. I lived in Murphy Canyon. I right. had to take three buses to get over here. My parents definitely didn't help me out, you know. Uh, to get to the beach from Murphy Canyon, you had to take three buses and walk like six blocks.
0: Were you around
1: when the Spirit Club was around? Of course. The roving eye report, Uh, what was that guy's name (laughs) who did that in the reader? I used to read the reader religiously as a you know young musician just to see what's going on. And I always thought the Spirit Club ad was great because he had at the bottom like, g- like a gossip column about all the stuff that was happening with San Diego bands. I thought it was the weirdest thing ever. But like who wrote that? And like why did that happen? Who does that? It was like a little national enquirer column just for San Diego musicians. I thought it was really inventive and cool. And I mean it, it never really said anything of substance, but it would say when a band got a record deal or like a band got a big show or something, and it would say it was just a weirdest thing you remember that the roving eye music report it was in the spirit ad he had a big ad and in the bottom of it he had that and it was just like that was that was a husband and wife team i I remember if you got booked at the spirit they put your picture in sure that was was, a big thing i remember my picture being there i'm like look i was (laughs) my mom never cared but i like showed my dad i was like look he's like oh son you're doing something important i um, (laughs) am I recently got a really wonderful picture of a uh,
0: friend of mine I went to college with who uh, passed away r- early in life, unfortunately. And it, but who just rocking just the most amazing Texas Tea House shirt. Oh, nice! Uh, and and I went and saw Tomcat there, and then of course whatever crappy band I was in played there at least twice. And sure, but okay. So then there was um, Blind Melons, mm-hmm. right? And then. Uh, well, that's 710 Beach Club now, right? Yeah, that's 710 Club. Okay, yeah. So, But Blind Melons used to have next to it this neighbor bar, and this neighbor bar was just this super weird, tiny place that had a stage on a pedestal like six feet high up behind the bar that a band would be playing on, and they had room for about 20 people in front of it. Six-foot high stage? It was really high up there, <laughs> and it was like the ghettoest thing ever, except everyone looked at it and they're like, we got to do this once. We got to get up there and, and make it. But that was Garnett in those days. Like, you know, Kevin Hellman was... Booking that place that's now the open bar, and he was doing the, the same old Sean Healy trick. Of course. Here's 300 Natasha's tickets. ghosts. Yeah,
1: <laughs> exactly. Listen, man, like I, it's funny because I, <laughs> I have a brother. He's uh, eight years older than me. And when I was 16, I took his birth certificate to the DMV and got a driver's license with his information and my picture on it. So I was able to get into bars going real early. And I only did, I didn't do that so I could buy booze. I mean, I did, but I did that so I can get in and see bands. And so like, I remember when Bodie's was downtown on F street. Right. And I went down there and I saw rust and inch and rocket and all these like early, like badass San Diego bands. And like, I was just this little kid in the corner, you know, like trying to look like I fit in, but I saw all these bands like playing, you know? And I thought it was like, like, it's what indoctrinated me into the local music scene and made me realize like how vital it is to to be a part of something like that you know everybody knew everybody and i was like looking from the outside i didn't go to school with any of those guys they're all older than me you know i just thought it was the coolest thing i ever saw uh green circle bar what's that <laughs> the green circle bar
0: that name sounds familiar just is the, what part
1: of town was that in super downtown when
0: downtown before downtown had not the red circle gentrific-
1: the red circle no, was no, down there no
0: green circle green bar. circle
1: bar that you remember is- that freddie
0: it has the launching place of uh Grey Boy All Stars. Grey Boy, okay, yeah. Right? And yeah, is that was super oddball like
1: one bar one bar, interchange i passed carl denson on the one-on-one the other day i was walking my dog and i see this guy walking towards me and i'm like that's that's fucking carl denson and like he was like walking by i'm like carl and he's like hey what's up man and i'm like what do you do?" doing he's like, out for a walk he's like the, he's totally happy you know carl plays for the stones <laughs> yeah this is the coolest thing ever yeah
0: carl played at music box and that's one of my favorite stories ever um uh They uh, called and said they had to drop some stuff off, and then – so then a truck pulls up, and it's him by himself, right? Yes. And he's got um, a box truck, and he takes the back of the box truck, and he comes in, and there's me and the girl working in the box office. He's like, can I get a hand, (laughs) right? So next thing you know, it's me and Carl in the back of his box truck. He's got – uh, SVT uh, 810 he's got a Hammond dude. a Hammond with a spinet <sighs> all cased oh my like, god he had that's heavy as, gear he had as much gear as the Stones in that truck By and this, he doesn't play a Hammond he's like lugging other people he doesn't play bass yeah why you know? was he doing that I, well why were we doing that yeah. is the uh, is there, uh, so he and I got a, a pretty good sized workout in the middle of the afternoon at Music Box as we unloaded other people's gear for oh, his he's in show in good shape man he, he can lift some stuff he might, have said, he might have said, hey, I'll do it. i got to get the workout in to the other guys. But yeah, it was the funniest thing. He said, hey, you doing anything right now? And I, yeah, huh. I met him loading gear off of his truck. He's a great. hell of
1: a nice guy. I love
0: that dude. Uh, there's another place that became Bar West. But before it was Bar West, it was one of those. Uh, I, I affectionately refer to it as Barf West. <laughs> but <laughs> before, fucking Barf West. Before it was that, <laughs> it was uh, some sort of a popcorn and uh, sawdust bar. And they used to, I
1: like just. It wasn't Moose McGillicuddies, was it?
0: No, it wasn't. Moose that was on Garnett. Yeah, that was. And definitely. then it
1: was a couple different bars. It was a weird scene. It was a lot of Navy dudes, like yeah. down there, like military guys. Not, I mean, there's still military dudes who go down there, but now it's like college kids from Arizona. It has been that way for a long time. And then you know?
0: you'd go down to Belmont's, and on one side you'd have the Red Robin. Oh, yeah. Right? Or is it the Red Onion? You can get oh. really good drugs down to Belmont in the old right. days, man. But, uh, and then uh, on the <laughs> other side uh, was Chillers.
1: Chillers, Is that where they had all the slushies? Yeah. Dude, dude, I got a funny story about that place. They had the meanest security in history, <laughs> the meanest security guards. Like, they just, they, they would just pummel you if you looked at them wrong. But uh, I got a, a call. It was one of my early bands that we were called Paste, and we were just little kids. And somehow I got involved with this, this concert promoter. His name literally was Rockin' Johnny White. <laughs> Did you ever hear that name? Hey man, and he talked really fast. Hey man, it's Rock Johnny White. What's going on? You, uh, I, was, I was wondering if you want to show. hey, want to do a show for me. We opened up for Quiet Riot at Chillers, <laughs> and I wasn't old enough to be in the bar. I mean, I was. I had the I had the ID, but uh, I remember like kind of walking around and looking. And they had all these slushy machines. They all had booze, and I'm like, what? Like, what a weird concept. They have like like. 20 slushy machines Like you'd see at 7-Eleven And they would like squirt out of these like, You know, uh, taps And they would just like, like glob into these cups And they would dump a bunch of booze in it And they would give it to you and you would drink it You were drinking like booze slushies the whole time What a strange concept That's almost as weird of a concept as the Lincoln Room An Abraham Lincoln themed bar <laughs> Dude, who, who I, I got an idea bro, can you see that? How high were those guys? Like, hey man, let's start a bar yeah, what, what kind of bar? I got an idea, dude. Everybody loves Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> we'll start a bar. We'll call it the Lincoln Room, and we'll like build it out of logs, and we'll have pennies on the bar. People will get fucked up in there. It'll be awesome. Like, <laughs> I walked in, and I'm like, holy shit, somebody really did it. Abraham Lincoln-themed bar. <laughs> what, what the fuck?
0: If that was an Eagle
1: Rock, that guy would already be a millionaire. Um there was some funny shit downtown, Joe. There was some funny shit. Like the club we worked at, it was just a big barn. They would pile people in and overcharge them for drinks, and we were all like cool, dude. The music was always good. They're the best DJs in town, man. Like and people were like lit all the time. It was really good. I made a shit ton of money in there for a puppy, you know? It was pretty good. But uh, you before you get too mad about chillers and the slushy drinks, isn't
0: that short club's business model? The Shore Club has slushies. Oh, Shore yeah, Club they, is a dive. Shore Club, we used ma- to call that shit club. Is the is the <laughs> it's number barf one bar? Western shit club, dude. Is the number one seller of Red Bull because they have a Red Bull vodka slushy drink.
1: Uh, wow, Red Bull, Red Bull vodka slushy. Yeah, I don't understand. I don't like It's like wine coolers. Like, why? You no, know, it's just because
0: everyone has to turn 21 sometime and there's a fresh crop every year.
1: That's true. But you would think, like, I, I have a daughter and I will teach her to know better. You know what I mean? It's like, don't drink that. That's like, you want to look like an amateur? Do you want to be a target? Don't order that. Like, I'm telling you, it's not good.
0: Yeah. Yeah. My, my whole point in all that, though, is uh, all those clubs, uh, all the like the ecosystem it is like, Thirty-four. Those are all clubs that are dead. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Bodie's, uh, Chillers, uh, Spirit. Uh, they 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 came and went. And but the know, Lincoln Room. Yeah. Even <laughs> he, even, the, even I don't know the, how that one's not still around. <laughs> even the old Casbah. You know, it was now
1: Kava. You know, and uh-huh. was, you know so. <laughs> oh, it was. It was the Velvet. For a while. Right. And that was one place I frequented because Andy was always so drunk, he never checked anybody's ID anyway. <laughs> I just didn't want people like, you're too young. So I would go there. I saw some great bands in there, man. That was, like, stage was tiny. I saw No Knife in there. Like all these like, young San Diego bands I used to sneak in to the Velvet or just like, go in there and hang out, man. It was rad, you know? I met a lot of friends in there. I met Jason Hill in there. <laughs> and we became fast friends. Uh,
0: that's funny stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the thing that i'm involved in now is uh, the uh, san diego independent venue association uh-huh. and uh you know we're like what what all those clubs are facing like uh, the the whether it's the Marrow or the tower or, um a Tiltu or the um you know sort soda brick by brick uh you know aztec um you know belly up like uh, a lot of those businesses have been around. Like, obviously, Marrow was Radio Room and, you know, or Ruby Room. Ruby Room. And, um, you know, that's a, going on, you know, 15 years of legacy stuff at this point. And, you know, that, that's what they're facing. Like, you, you remember the Casbah? You know, you, you remember the Bellia? God, yeah. it went for 40 years, and then pandemic, and, you know, so like the whole thing is we got this thing together. Like, cause it didn't want to be the yearbook. Sure. didn't want to be the yearbook from 84 For and sure. have like a, a mass exodus and then you know all kinds of you know, it would be healthy to green shoot style for a bunch of new businesses to come in and replace all the old businesses. It would eventually happen, but you would wind up... It would all it get be compartmentalized, yeah. and you'd have to basically have this free association game that you and I just played, because that's all we would have. Yeah. That's that's my whole point in all this stuff. And um, so like, I got involved with this, because I, I just didn't want to have it be a mass exodus, and I was... you know. You know, somebody mentioned Dang to me today. I was actually surfing with uh, with Christian from Out 1011, oh, and, yeah, cool. and he he'd hung out with Dang that day today. and we We're all talking about all this same crazy stuff, and um, but we you know we didn't want to have any more uh, bar pinks. We didn't want to have any more uh, martinis over fourth. Like it, just, but- it had to stop. And so we got involved. Like how do we get everything together and get into this grants process and get into this national thing and and try to like stave off extinction. You know, and it's it's, it's been a success. And what efforts
1: are you taking to make that happen, to help that along? Well, we've gotten sort of near to
0: the end of the rainbow. Number one, the clubs are going to reopen. Number two, uh, the um, federal government's going to probably make uh, some version of a grant possible for almost every one of those clubs that I named, which is essentially going to— Pay their landlords off before they get evicted, and allow them to like Good. basically think about the day one of a reopening as a fresh start. Good, you know, it, it's it's not every answer. That thing is already the, well, the, the, the the grant that we are trying to get is actually expired already. It's it not a
1: PPP loan. It's something it's, different. No, no, no,
0: just for venues. It, it's a shuttered grand, venue, venue grant. Yeah, yeah. the
1: shuttered venue grant. Right, right. Yeah, I read about
0: it. Right. Uh, so you know, got a bunch of people, and I, I did a whole bunch of I, things I've never done before. I do, I do have a financial background. I did come out of school with is a little bit, like you know, qualified to take the CPA exam and that kind of thing. And so, when this came to bat, I was able to help a bunch of venues, the courtyards of the world, the spins of the world, like those guys. Uh, so that like as many people as we could get in touch with, we would get them, um, get them into. Uh, an organized state so that they can at least apply and find out if they would qualify and be part of the grants process. And uh, there's there's no other way to uh, sort of... Go over what was at stake then talking about like the Texas Tea house and all these clubs because that's that's what they were risking. They were risking like i want I want to get a texas tea house t shirt really bad now
1: oh, for I, sure. g- I
0: gotta go figure out like I may have to go license somebody to remake one there's
1: one on eBay somewhere dude I, I I've been looking you look the Pulse has probably got an extra one,
0: but you know when we when we come out of this reopening, you know and your band is uh you know got many of the same same familiar options as, as 18 months ago uh, that that was was more the goal than anything
1: I mean and- I purposely held off I was gonna put out a record this year in tour that was my right. plan the record's done you know and, like, I'm not going to release till until 22 now because the touring looks so spotty. We put out a new record, brand new band, all these great players. You've got this record made by this famous producer. Like, hey, man, let's do something cool and, like, try to give it a push. Like, there's no options for that. For artists right now, it's like every record I saw get dropped on the Internet. For everything that went out, it just was, like, whoosh, into the nether, you know? People put out really great music over the over the pandemic, but there was so much saturation on the Internet. There was so much just like click 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 all the time people's attention spans are three seconds long they're not going to sit there and absorb an entire record unless there's a really good reason to do it and usually that reason is that you go see the band live
0: yeah so we're going to get to that space here in the next few months yeah I, I saw this thing and i'm not going to try to quote from it i'm going to try to paraphrase a little bit but it's basically like the 10 commandments of going back to the reopening and a lot of it is you know People in other places talking about stuff, and but I think it's just like healthy, forgivable anticipation. What it's going to be like. Like the big thing was, uh, no, you can't be on the guest list. I would have said it differently. I'm like, I hope that people understand buying tickets is part of the ecosystem coming out the gate. That there's a thing called a lower capacity, and that the tickets might be a few dollars higher because of that,
1: but Uh, rightfully so
0: you know and and we also understand the other side of the equation that money's tough and money's tight but you know we're going to go out there we're going to start to make these experiences happen again that we got to create the entire economic model what we don't want to see is um you know a half model show up and you know where there's a general expectation, oh no, I don't even know if I wanna
1: go out anymore, uh, you know, what are you gonna do, what's in it for me? Like. The whole list <laughs> mentality is bullshit anyway, dude, it really is, like the idea of it is irritating to me. It's like, oh, you know, hey, you know, we're playing, oh, can you put me on the list? Why, because you know me? Or, you know, like in the, in the nightclub scene, you know, where I worked for a bartender for a long time, everybody wants to get on a list, and that was a, a little bit more legitimate because the cover charge was 40 bucks. Right. Like, okay, I can see if you're broke, but if If you're going into a place where the drinks cost 15 bucks each, like, why are you sweating paying $40 at the door? Like, it's just funny to me. It's not so much that people don't want to pay the money it's they want to feel like they're included or special somehow. And like, look, I'll tell you what's a smart thing to do is sell the tickets ahead of time and then make a list of everybody who paid. Look, you're on the list. (laughs) Come on in. You're on the list. Like, am I on the list? You sure are. You paid your 40 bucks. Get in here, big guy. Go Get up there and get yourself a $10 drink.
0: There's definitely two kinds of lists. There's lists that are basically used to market, you know, and that, I, I totally get that. If I get that's it your, too. If, if that's your it. business model, and uh, or just like some nights, that's my business model in, in, in the pre-pandemic phase. But in the in the short term, as we're ramping up, we we got to go and try to put some money in the till and get these businesses healthy. I don't as think people are going to be
1: hesitant to pay to go see something live. I really don't. I think I'll do it. And I mean, I honestly, man. Because I've been a musician so long in this town, I can, uh, like, at least before the pandemic, I could walk into any venue and with door guy I'd be like, oh, hey, TJ. And I would just walk in. Sometimes I would buy tickets, but a lot of times I didn't just because I played there so many times. But I am more than happy, more than happy to pay for tickets and go in, you know? So the other thing that came to mind, and I'm just sounding this stuff out, maybe
0: out of paranoia or whatever, but... Um you know, there was at the beginning of the pandemic, there was this thing about um, you could determine your social distance by taking one of those pool noodles and um, going into a space. And then if the pool noodle didn't touch another human being, then you had six feet of space, right? Right. So now I'm afraid that like— Uh, people are going to go right up to the front in front of the band and they're going to take out of their pocket that spray marker that they use in the (laughs) World Cup of Soccer and they're going to make a six foot ring around them and they're going to say this is my space right here in the very front don't step into my line and I'm going to have to send a security guard and say, ah, it doesn't really work that way. You have right. to sort of make your own space by re- exiting towards the back. You can't go into the front and create, you know, the I, Louisiana Purchase.
1: I, I, I don't know. I mean, six feet. Is it still six feet or is it three now? I don't know. I say if I can't touch you with my erect penis, then you're safe, <laughs> right? And for Mikey B, it's like he can stand right next to you and t- not touch you with his erect penis because uh, he'll hit me right up on you. <laughs> See, I, I don't – <laughs> I hope he listens to this. What do you mean, man? Yeah. Like I've seen your dick enough times to know, dude. That you could be like on top of my shoulders and not touch me with your erect penis. He has two beautiful daughters. I could be giving you a piggyback ride. I know, God bless Jenny. Like she's like she must be some sort of a gymnast or something. I don't know, I don't know how she does it. And she's so beautiful. It's like, dude, what the hell? I love Mikey. All right. We've all seen it, man. Like, come on. How many times have you seen that thing, Fred? <laughs> it's terrifying. I wake up in the middle of the night with flashbacks sometimes. Like, oh, my. Yeah, just like. And maybe it's because he's so big it looks that way, but it's, it's not a pleasant sight.
0: That uh, <laughs> is an unforgettable moment. I, I,
1: <laughs> oh, you've seen it, too? I, <laughs> sure you have. I don't know no. if he does it as much anymore now that he's got daughters. He's got he's to he's tame it down. They're cognitive now of what he's doing.
0: And then I, I'm, I'm hearing that when we do get this thing going again, that unfortunately, when you do stuff inside like this, and it's not going to be socially distanced, and everyone's going to be vaccinated, that even though that's true, that for the foreseeable future, probably a couple months, they're still going to want to have that be completely masked. And so then I'm, I've been watching all these Padres games, and um, I actually went to one. And at first, oh, cool. it was it was uh, really interesting that it was all chin diaper style, like yeah, you know. And the video was really bad. I think Major League Baseball sort of complained a bit, and it was you know kind of an eyesore. And so then I went. By the time I went there, in between the innings, the usher came down to the front and looked up, and he started shaming the people that didn't have their masks on. Like, the, you guys agreed to this when you got yeah, it, yeah. and you came in, and you know he was forceful to, to a point and he didn't really take it to the level of throwing people out but you know he wound up having to basically counsel uh, paying guests over and over for nine innings. And I, you know, I'm not looking forward to that. What's, I mean, what's the big deal about wearing the goddamn mask? Oh, I mean, I, it's uncomfortable. Uh, just, I, I mean, it's, not really. In a mosh I mean, like, pit, I'm used to it. Sure. Like, dude, I, I mean, just, it
1: was a while where, I, because I run with my dog. There was a while where I was wearing it while I was running before they told you, you didn't have to wear it outside anymore. And like, because I wanted to be courteous, I'm like running down. Like, I live in a really populated area, so like I'm on the 101, and there's like people walking by, old people on walkers. I'm not gonna go by breathing heavy on them. So I'm like jogging with with a mask on which is incredibly uncomfortable but like dude it, it's it's a small gesture very small as far as I'm concerned on anybody's part to put a mask on it's not really that uncomfortable i mean get a get an easy one to breathe through they don't all have to be these big monolithic things you know it's it's not really that big a deal i didn't have a struggle with it at all and i like there was a guy i kind of got into it with this dude because um, the market in, my, uh, in Cardiff, Seaside Market, which is where I shop all the time, unfortunately, it's bank account draining because it's so expensive there. But I love the food. So um, I'm walking in and they they have like, a, they're very guarded, you have to wear a mask in the store. And there was like, it was, you know, right in the middle of the pandemic, there was some Yahoo there who was like, I'm not going to wear a mask, you got to let me in. And like, he was being obscene and you know, mean to this young girl who was trying to stop him. And he was like trying to force his way in. So I got in his face. And I was like, look, man, I'll put your mask on or go home. <laughs> like Nobody wants to listen to you say this stuff. Why are you doing this? Why are you causing a spectacle? Why are you yelling at this young girl over a mask? He's like, well, I don't have one. I'm like, I'm sure they can give you one. And I said, do you have a mask? He goes, yeah. I said, here. I gave it to him. I'll put it on. And he was like, I'm not going to put that stupid thing on. I'm like, then get the fuck out of here because nobody wants to hear you anymore. And he was like, oh, and he left, and everybody applauded. And I was like, look, this is what we got to do, you know? It's, like, not that big of a deal. Like, if you want to make a big deal out of it, you're the asshole. I mean, you've just described the ingredients
0: of, like, 700... Airplane brawls that sure. there's videos of over and over and over. They've never solved this stuff, and I'm just bringing bringing it back into the context. They just the need scarier
1: people, dude. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I mean, <laughs> you know, I'm scary as shit if I need to be. I,
0: I, I run a I run a club with 22 security guards. Yeah. you know, I, I lost a bunch of them. A lot of them went into law enforcement. In the and I'm super proud. A, but you know, they they didn't that lose way. them. You donated them. <laughs> they got that way um, uh, from you know having to deal with people under a different set of circumstances. I I don't look forward to our staff having to do that. I actually have a lot of admiration for Trader Joe's. Uh, Trader Joe's had like a super um, you know, sharp operation and they were doing things in the exact right way, but there's videos of them too. There's videos of those guys having to care. There's videos of Costco having to confront people. Yep. So we just sort of know it's coming. We know that there's uh, going to be customers that are going to just basically,
1: yeah, you know, if you want my money, I don't, envy. Know, I don't envy that position that you're going to be in at all, man. Like I don't understand the mentality on their side. I just, I don't see how it's justified and like it irritates the hell out of me but i don't anybody who comes into my building it's private so i don't have to worry about it i can't imagine a public forum like that i mean like i'm sorry uh if you need me to come scare some people i'm more than happy to do it and I, we, we will definitely take care of it i'm just saying i'm not looking forward to what i'm trying to do is i'm trying to get that dialogue
0: out is, is it, i really this is the worst form of mar- marketing i could ever possibly do like yeah. talking about some of the stuff i'm really not looking forward to it like don't complain about your customers like you know Brand identity rule number one, but I do feel like we got to have some level of the conversation. Why about do you have decorum? a door prize?
1: Person with the coolest mask wins tickets to this. Yeah. Person with the coolest mask gets a free drink at the bar. Hey, you know, if I see you, like if you uh, have an extra mask to give somebody who doesn't have one, you you know, yeah. you get a VIP seat. We'll we, we, we try to make it fun, but fun. I, I'm just a,
0: I, make I keep, it cool to wear masks. I keep looking at all these other businesses that have plowed through all this stuff. Uh, and you know they 've basically been running you know Karen to Karen to Karen, you know, and uh, you know i'm I'm hoping that with a little bit of communication we can sort of get out there like it, it, the thing I love the most about San Diego is um the the people that that go to these shows and it could be various different kinds of shows uh you know country at you know at the belly up or indie at the um Kasbah or can 't be now missing uh, four martinis over fourth, but that it's still it 's a group of people who thrive on going to these things, and so the appeal is that the whole ten commandments thing, the whole appeal to all those guys is sort of know what you 're getting into, visualize it, help get people out, but also help people understand like it's, at least in the short term, be super open minded about how the participation's going to work, and just be leaders like you guys always have been, and um, try to have it be like you know we all did this in sort of a unified front the, the opposite of how politics have gone in this country for the, a minute here uh, you know it is, it, the only way to do it is to ask and it's, I, you know that's just sort of me saying, hey, visualize it it ain't going to be easy there's a couple of things you probably want to think of as you're getting out there um, and the, the more you think about it, the more you can participate and participate in a way that's beneficial for both sides we want to do something really special we want to get open early we want to get everyone in the room and get the experiences going we want to give you guys the outlets that you had grown accustomed to. We want to provide a bunch of opportunities for bands. Bands are, you know, uh, an equal participant in this thing. They need these things to occur. It's, it's part of how they make money. It, we need to put money in the till for the clubs and get those guys healthy. It's a market. It takes all those people coming in and trying to do things the exact right way for the thing to function. And we, we probably should give it some thought before we just turn the lights on. Otherwise, we'll wind up being what I saw. It's last. also the counting on,
1: on the good nature and goodwill of people as well. And not everybody's good-natured and goodwill. And that's, that you're going to have to look at the airplane thing. You know, you're going to have that. You look at the people in the airports fighting. It, it's going to happen. There's going to be Those people who come in who just don't want to accommodate anybody but themselves. And so there's going to, I mean, I can understand the dilemma. I can understand the worry. Um, All the unpleasantness part about it aside, though, for artists, musicians, uh, anybody who's looking forward to being able to start performing again, I think it's an incredibly exciting time. Uh, I've been telling all the, the the people I've been recording, and the musicians who call me and talk to me, and people in my studio, uh, to to like bone up on it, man. Like you know what? Get in the room and start getting your act together now. Like and rethink your live show. Like when you play a show, people haven't seen a show, and like even people who before went out to a lot of shows are like reinvigorated and excited to come and watch like actual live music. Wow them. Because you'll have this window here where all this interest and all this excitement is happening for live performances. And you can rise to that occasion by upping your game as an artist and putting on a show like you didn't do lights before. Bring some lights. Bring some props. Dress in costumes. Do something else. Put some visuals up. Like Think about it ahead of time. Like Don't just do the music, but give them a show. Give them something to talk about. If you don't know how to do a backflip, figure it out. I think that message is just as important as the customer message we just went over like yeah definitely absolutely
0: I mean and, and the, I think the clubs are thinking about it the exact same way too I, I know we are I know we
1: engage like, hey, can we you know? use that
0: video wall any better can we totally like, can we change any aspect of what make it an, we're an doing? immersive live experience yeah, yeah, like yeah, draw
1: these people into you like, it, like honestly you can stand out from the rest of the people who don't put the effort in it's just like with anything like you'll rise above if you put the, the effort in and it's good and you can pull it off like if you gotta spend a little extra time and money and effort to To make your show that much better, it will pay off. And this is your opportunity to do it. This is the chance. Like, if you get on that stage, don't go up there half-assed. And I've told all these guys, like, there's 17 rooms in my studio. There's probably upwards of 70 musicians in there, maybe, I don't know, 20, 25 bands. And I'm like, look, don't just show up and do your regular shit. Like, you know, figure something cool out. And like, well, what do we do? I'm like, well, you want me to tell you what to do? Like, (laughs) what do you do? What do you do? The greatest benefit
0: of the last sixty, ninety minutes has been—I bet you—a bunch of people miss hearing that perspective from you. I bet you that there's a ton of people who haven't had that—you know—Sunday night evangelical moment with t j in a minute, and I, I hope that they get a chance to to channel some of this stuff and it's for a good cause. We talked about some stuff that's super important with how to get back into the live thing and the the you know best way to think about some of this stuff and, and how to get healthy and how to get to it but um all that's all great but i i Have a sneaking suspicion that um, your fan base, not specifically all the great band and musician and studio and all that, but the the perspective you've been putting out there for quite some time, uh, you know, it's a a missed thing. And I I bet you this is going to be a great proxy for that for people or placebo for that for people who missed it for a minute.
1: That's a sweet thing to say, Joe. Yeah. uh, Hey, man, like I never set out to be a radio show host. It just kind of fell in my lap one night and lasted for six years. It was like the weirdest one night stand that turned into a relationship ever, you know. Um, And like the the funny thing is, is that I learned a lot from it. And I got to like speak to my friends every night. They would come in. I got to meet a lot of people. uh, And I got to play music that I thought was visceral and important, not only to, to, to the San Diego scene and to other musicians, but to me personally, you know, I didn't play just San Diego bands. I I I got thousands of submissions, thousands, and I've tried to listen to as much as I could. And there's some great young and old artists, creative people out there making incredible music everywhere. A lot of people just don't understand that you have to consistently drive at it. It's not just like, oh, I made this record everybody's going to love me and then nobody likes it cuz they didn't hear it and then they get discouraged and stop and go back to their day job. Like, okay, do your day job but keep creating. Like we the all great things in this world come from the creators. They come from artists. You have to have imagination and vision and try something that hasn't been tried before, then that will that will advance humanity as a whole, you know? So that's why I'm such a huge supporter of like people being you know, kind of lifting their art up and creating this new stuff. And the fact that the radio show was canceled, it wasn't just mine. Like, Entercom canceled every AAA show they had across every station. The the End in Seattle got canceled. Like, the local show on K-Rock got canceled. Like, these long-standing shows that were together a lot longer than mine were just got, like, blown into the wind, man, without any regard for how that affected the the local scene and i i sent a letter to the intercom people when i got the word that the show was going to canceled and i was like look you guys are struggling trying to find an audience you need to find a local audience, like all this playlist stuff and the internet stuff. If you're not helping anybody canceling these shows, the only people that listen to the show are people who feel like they have a personal connection to the people on the radio and the music you play. What you're doing is ostracizing yourself into a relic space. Like the internet's already got you outmatched in every way, shape, and form. The only way you can beat them is to put on stuff, content on the air that people in the local area can attach to. And that's one great thing about local shows is, like, local people listen to it. And they're like, wow, this is cool. I need to do this. And I think that that's why radio is dying because they're trying to compete with the internet instead of moving into the direction why people started listening to radio in the first place. You know, where's Wolfman Jack when you need him? Like, people who recognize those voices. Like, I remember growing up and playing Legos on my carpet and having my little clock radio on and listening to the DJs and waiting for my song i mean those days are gone but i was still attached to the idea that they would like play my request or do something because it makes you feel involved with it and i think that's where the music business as a whole is kind of it's more content than quality now you know it's like let's just throw all this shit at people like in mass and they'll pick what they like and look, we got a hundred thousand clicks on this and 200 clicks on that. Yeah. But people paid attention for three seconds. Yeah. Like you're contributing to the issue. You're not holding people's attention. You're not giving them anything of value to take away from it. And that's where the problem lies. And that's what I try to transfer to these people. I talked to about the live show. It's like, look, man, you have this time in front of them. They're going to be excited to be there. Don't waste it. Don't waste their time for a second. Don't even they shouldn't even want to go get a drink because what they're seeing is so cool, and that's where it takes the effort. You have to put the effort in to make it happen.
0: I think there's a, a hybrid technology coming that's going to probably do some uh, uh, some of the things we've learned in the last little while. Like the 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 model of doing a, the Sunday Night Local show is, is, in my opinion, marred by commercials. And uh, in the, you can't actually do it – you can't do a podcast and play music because like, it gets um, shut off. Right. But you can do a Spotify playlist. So you probably could do a podcast that overlays onto a playlist and then actually have the same thing, but then control all of your metrics so you can distribute it like on Sundays at seven. Like I think Freddie could make one of those things in his spare time. Uh, (laughs) Oh, he's
1: got 20 spare time. Like, totally. Uh, People, it's funny because after the show I canceled, I got all these like bigwigs people calling me, oh, you know what you should do is start a podcast. You know what you should do is this. I'm like, oh, is that what I should do? Really? (laughs) I'm like, well, look, you know, if you start, uh, uh, I already own a business I'm running all this stuff I, I'm raising a family on my own you know <laughs> single dad and I have a music project that's important to me like when am I just going to start this if you start an entity I don't do anything half fast you have to go the full way the thing that was about the radio show is the, the entity was already established like it, it was already really well known and they were going to put me on the air and I could do what I wanted cool but like if somebody says oh you should do a podcast i had to promote that i have to get that out there i have to put the legwork in to make it heard and known and i have to advertise it and that's not something i'm interested in doing honestly at all i'm interested you want to invite me on to talk about music you want to like 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 go over some points cool i'm all about it promoting it i mean i've been in the music business a long time man promoting is a lot of work you know that like getting the word out about a show especially without a, a, a verified entity to piggyback on the fuck you gonna do?
0: Right. It's a yeah, lot of work. I, it's funny dude, podcasting doesn't appeal to me because I want a promoter to get famous. It's definitely not the whole thing that Well, it, you want a listener base, right? Well, at some like, level. So it, the same it,
1: two the same two guys listen to it every time and they call you like that's pretty good. You know, like it, you want you wanna make a point, you wanna connect with people. That was my goal every time I talked about music on the air. Is like I was hoping some kid in a band was listening because I like look, dude, like don't like listen. Here's what you gotta do. Like this will help you. It's, it it's, it's good advice, It's also like poignant conversation. Not that I know everything, but but a lot of these things aren't spoken about in public, you know.
0: But in podcasting though, there's a lot like in uh, bands that like to rehearse more than they like to play live shows. Like there's some, that's just their comfort zone. Like, uh, you know, you can sort of have this sort of long form thing and you don't really have to care about metrics or numbers because it doesn't really cost that so much to do it. You know, it's, it's something you can do and then it can take its own sweet time to find its following. You don't have to have your 60 people show up. Otherwise your show was a failure. You can put the thing out and it can have a year or two years. Oh, I've, I've had I, stuff. Yeah, there's it, there's it, no it took, shelf life on it. A for year, sure. a year later is when it found its audience. But that, anyway, that
1: point is taken. It's just, not the way I do things. Yeah. And that's me personally,
0: you know? Oh, I know that. Yeah. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah, like it's like, look, if I want to spend some time on something, I want it to be worthwhile. I want to feel like I'm accomplishing something that I'm setting out to do. And so, like, starting a podcast was never something I wanted to set out to do.
0: I I I do think though that you should be trying to um, uh, have your show on your terms. Uh, basically any way that you want it but like you you have that franchise it's, I think of it the same way I thought of like Jonesy's Jukebox you know well
1: look if that opportunity presents itself I will definitely consider it very seriously I, but I'm just you know like right now I'm, I've am i made this incredible record with all these great musicians and like I'm really excited about it and that's the next phase I'm entering and it's gonna take um, it's a full-time job for me on top of all my the other full-time jobs you know <laughs> so like that's something I well, is definitely there but it's like hey man you know I, I get emails and calls like, When's, what are you going to do next? I want to hear you talk about this and that. It's like, yeah, eventually I would love to do it. I would, I would always love to come in and talk to, especially my friends, about music and like see my, my brothers who I've known forever and like discuss creative things. That's all exciting to me. You know, I'll do it anytime. It's just not something I'm going to focus my energy and time on to create, you know?
0: On that note, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we talked about a whole bunch of stuff. I, I do think we've done something really fun where a bunch of people who have missed hearing your voice have got a chance to do it. And um, uh, that's probably you know, the proudest moment here. And if we you know, got some of our messages out, that's great. Uh, TJ, it's been absolutely wonderful having you come out. Um, you know I love you,
1: Joe. It's it, awesome it, to see you, man.
0: And, uh Hopefully, we'll have enough to talk about that we'll come back and do this thing again.
1: I can talk about anything you'd like. Uh, Maybe we could talk about my erect penis some more when these uh, pandemic things go away. Apparently,
0: you will have no trouble (laughs) doing
1: that. (laughs) All right, everybody. Thank you.